Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and today we'll be talking about a trial that came before the ALMS trial. I know I said in the last episode that we would be discussing the ALMS trial today, but I realized as I was thinking about it that we should really talk about cyclophosphamide. The ALMS trial is important because it showed us that Celsept, or mycophenolate mofetil, was equivalent to cyclophosphamide, but it doesn't make sense to tell you about that until we know how good cyclophosphamide is as opposed to just glucocorticoids. So for that, we need to flash back to 1996 to a study in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Steinberg et al. entitled Methylprednisolone and Cyclophosphamide, Alone or in Combination in Patients with Lupus Nephritis. For background, lupus nephritis is a common and often devastating complication of lupus. Untreated, it often progresses to end-stage renal disease. At the point of this trial, they used either monthly boluses of methylprednisolone at 1 gram per meter squared, which is quite a lot of steroid, or cyclophosphamide. Not all patients got both, some patients got neither, it was very inconsistent at that point. Most people suspected that cyclophosphamide was an important addition to therapy, but it wasn't known definitively. To address this issue, the authors designed a randomized controlled trial pitting cyclophosphamide against methylprednisolone and then against a combination of cyclophosphamide and methylprednisolone. Cyclophosphamide was given at doses of 750 mg per meter squared, but then they titrated to leukocyte counts. They gave it monthly, as we do now, for six months, and then they gave it quarterly. For methylprednisolone, patients got 1 gram per meter squared for 12 months, and up to 3 years if they had persistent castor protein greater than 1 gram in their urine. That's a lot of steroid. And then, a third group received both of these therapies. All patients also got half a milligram per kilogram of prednisone for four weeks that was then tapered by five milligrams, sort of by a slow schedule every other week. 82 patients with lupus nephritis, defined as active proliferative glomerulonephritis on biopsy plus sediment, red blood cell, or leukocyte casts, were included. It was conducted at the NIH from 1986 to 1990. Exclusions included cytotoxic drugs or pulse-dose steroids prior to entry, requiring half a milligram per kilogram of oral steroid prior to entry, infections, pregnancy, monokidney, insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus, or allergies to any of the study drugs. Primary outcomes were good ones. It was the percent achieving remission, the lack of casts, less than one gram per day, or how they define that, or the number of non-responders. Unfortunately, they did not power the study for the kind of outcomes we really like, such as death. The secondary outcome was progression to end-stage renal disease, which is a great patient-centric outcome. When you talk to patients with lupus and talk to them about their kidneys, all of them are very concerned about winding up on dialysis. They also evaluated the doubling of the serum creatinine, the number of relapses, which they defined as 50% increase in sediment, protein, area, or creatinine. Unfortunately, there was no blinding. This was essentially an open-label trial and the analysis was done per protocol. So even though they did some sensitivity analysis that essentially confirmed their findings, it's not a pure intention to treat study. The results were 27 people wound up in the methylprednisolone group, 27 wound up in the cytoxin only group, and 28 wound up in the combination group. It should be noted that 17 of the 82 patients were censored for a variety of reasons. These included pregnancy, protocol violations, and actually a couple deaths. The authors note that this is about what they would have expected, but to me that's kind of a high number. Losing about 20% of your patients throughout the study for a variety of reasons, 
The authors think that it was roughly balanced between groups. Most patients were in their 20s, with a mean around 30. Mostly were female. Around a quarter were black, and four, patients had about 4 grams of proteinuria. It's nice to see that representation of African-American patients in the study. A lot of these kinds of studies don't include enough minority populations, and patients of Hispanic or African-American descent are known to have more likely and more aggressive uh, lupus nephritis. Overall, methylprednisolone alone was clearly inferior to cytoxin alone, and both were clearly inferior to a combination of the two. Remicillin in the methylprednisolone group was 26% versus 48% in the cyclophosphamide group, and 61% in the combination therapy group. It's pretty impressive. That gives you a number needed to treat for combination therapy versus methylprednisolone alone of less than three. That means you need to treat three patients with a combination of cyclophosphamide and methylprednisolone to induce remission in one. Among those who went into remission for one year, 36% in the methylprednisolone group ultimately had a relapse, which is pretty high. 7% in the cyclophosphamide-only group had a relapse, which is better. Remember, though, that everyone got a little bit of steroid. And then 0% in the combination group had a relapse. That was only significant when pitted against the methylprednisolone group, but that's an interesting finding. Overall, that's pretty impressive. Like I said, the study was not powered to assess death. Adverse events were only significantly more common with respect to amenorrhea, which was more common in the cyclophosphamide groups as compared with the methylprednisolone group. Infections looked more common in the combination group. There's 32% who had serious infections versus 74.4%. Herpes zoster was also more common, 21% versus 4%. And there were more deaths in the cyclophosphamide group, 7.4 in the cyclophosphamide alone group versus 0 in the methylprednisolone group. Remember, though, this was a small trial, and that was really driven by only a few deaths, so it's not really clear if that's important. It's certainly not statistically significant. Anywhere from 11% in the cyclophosphamide-only group to 22% in the combination therapy groups had avascular necrosis, new avascular necrosis. That's pretty bad. That's a relatively serious complication and speaks to how much steroid patients in this trial got. There were some notable limitations. This was an open-label trial, it was small, it was a per-protocol analysis, and there were a high rate of dropouts. Most importantly, it just wasn't powered to assess for adverse events. These appeared to be more serious, and appeared to be more prevalent in the cyclophosphamide groups, but we just can't say. Aside from amenorrhea, that is. Finally, nobody really uses this much cyclophosphamide anymore, or this much steroid for that matter. It's not clearly applicable to our current practice. That's not necessarily because we're ignoring this trial. That's because subsequent studies showed that this trial probably used more cyclophosphamide and more steroid than was clearly necessary. A few take-home points. Looks like cyclophosphamide and methylprednisolone were clearly superior to either by themselves. The number needed to treat for the combination therapy versus steroid alone was around three, which is pretty impressive. Multiple other trials went on to confirm these findings, and there's a 2004 meta-analysis that estimated that cyclophosphamide added to glucocorticoid therapy conferred a 16% reduced risk of doubling of creatinine. That's not too bad. Obviously, this is less impressive than our trial, but that's pretty much what you see in research. Early trials with relatively small numbers of patients tend to show a greater effect size than later studies. Obviously, that's less impressive, but that's still something to hang your hat on. They also confirmed in this meta-analysis the increased risk of ovarian failure. 
47% versus 19% in the group that didn't get cyclophosphamide. That's pretty bad. That means that about one in three patients who gets cyclophosphamide therapy will undergo ovarian failure. As you saw in this study, a lot of these patients are young women in their 20s and 30s. I should note that the Eurolupus nephritis trial went on to show that for some patients, less cyclophosphamide is pretty reasonable. Moreover, our friends in the OB-GYN world can give a variety of therapies like Lupron to try to protect the ovaries. That being said, I think the authors of this trial presciently said, and I quote, we recognize that therapy with the drugs used in this study is a stopgap approach to lupus, and we await newer, less toxic, more specific intervention strategies. I think that's a great place to end today and sets us up, sets us up nicely for our regularly scheduled release, which will be this Sunday when we talk about the ALMS trial. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll look forward to talking to you then.